Good evening. I'm Rick Cottom. Welcome to Your Maryland. This state has always had a passionate relationship with its writers. Father Andrew White arrived in 1634 singing our praises, but nobody bought his story. Maryland was swampy, smelly, and much less inviting than London. In 1708, Ebenezer Cook wrote a satirical poem about life in the tidewater that said, These sotweed planters crowd the shore in hue as tawny as a moor, figures so strange no god designed to be a part of humankind. It was a minor hit. In 1722, when British satirist Daniel Defoe wanted to end his story of Maul Flanders, instead of sending her to jail or the gallows, he sent her to Maryland. She wasn't overly happy about it. Then we had the great river or bay of Chesapeake to cross. Our voyage was full 200 miles, in a poor, sorry sloop, and if any accident had happened to us, we might have been left naked and destitute in a wild and strange place. The very thought of it gives me some horror. Dr. Alexander Hamilton, a regular colonial comedian, poked fun at Annapolis and everybody in it during the 18th century. In the 19th, Maryland got even by killing Edgar Allan Poe. Local editors had been slow to publish Poe's work, so he moved to Richmond, then to New York, where he prospered and his reputation grew. Then in 1849, he made the fatal mistake of coming back. Legend has it that he was kidnapped and kept drunk at Gunner's Hall for several days during one of Baltimore's rowdy elections and died shortly thereafter. Poe's literary executor, who didn't like him very much, wrote a nasty obituary for the New York Tribune. Edgar Allan Poe is dead. He died in Baltimore the day before yesterday. This announcement will startle many, but few will be grieved by it. On the contrary, Marylanders, most of whom had ignored Poe while he was living, took him into their hearts. After the Civil War, Southerners flocked to Baltimore. Here the writers among them, like Sidney Lanier, created the myth of the Old South, of cultured ladies and refined gentlemen strolling about magnolia-draped plantations. The myth became a book, and the book became a movie, Gone with the Wind. Ironically, those gauzy images first took shape in a city without public water or sewer systems, where immigrants poured into sweatshops, the main streets were narrow, crowded alleys, the harbor stank unbearably in summer, and the whole thing was run by a corrupt political machine. It just goes to show what a writer with a little imagination can do. History, though, is often like a pendulum. When things go too far in one direction, the pendulum comes back the other way. So it was with Baltimore. Just when it seemed the place couldn't get any worse, Enoch Pratt, George Peabody, Henry Walters, and Johns Hopkins gave it a new cultural heart. When the Great Fire in 1904 led to a major rebuilding, somebody even thought to put in a sewer system. Progressives, muckrakers, and moral reformers turned darkness into light. And just then, like the pendulum, along came H.L. Mencken, finding hypocrisy and sanctimony everywhere. Recent books and articles about Mencken have accused him of being anti-Semitic, a stay-at-home mama's boy, complacent in the face of all the misery and injustice going on around him, and incidentally not a very good writer at all. It's enough to make a Marylander throw his shoulders back, stick out his chest, and shout nonsense. Henry Louis Mencken crackled with energy. With eyes glowing blue fire and his typewriter throwing sparks, he rose from the red brick soul of Baltimore and blasted everything and everybody in sight. Unlike other writers, he didn't fight with Maryland. He was Maryland, or at least Baltimore, fearless, irreverent, and honest. But what I admire most about Henry Mencken is the way he dealt the cards for his afterlife. Delighting in controversy and criticism, he kept his papers sealed for years after his death, knowing full well that when they were finally opened, the whole thing would start up again, and he'd be back with us. 
Sure enough, it has, and he is. 